0: So, if I sound sick, that would be the reason, uh, but amen. Uh, The the title of my lesson today is uh, Heroes Always Get Remembered, Legends Never Die. This is all up in my face right now, so I'm just going to push this back. Alright. Nice. But yeah, this is kind of like a a common adage or a common saying uh, in our culture. Uh, Most of us have heard this right here, Heroes Always Get Remembered. But legends never die. Uh, when we think of you know glory, and we think of uh, these stories that you know inspire us or get us riled up or get us excited, usually they involve heroes. Right. You no, know, usually they involve these singularities, these single persons, uh, you know, who by themselves uh, you know, conquer lands, who, who by themselves you know save the innocent, destroy villains, uh, you know, defend their people, what have you. Uh, and, you know, even when we think of history, you know, it, when we think of narratives, we think of, you know, we think of these, these heroes, these singularities. But even when we think of history and the narrative of history, we tend to, to sum up great moments in history in terms of heroes. You know, we, we look to, to singular persons uh, to kind of tell that story, that moment of glory within history. You know, in the American Revolution, in the American narrative, we have George Washington, you know, the, the, the entirety of the American Revolution for us, in, in some ways, is summed up by this one person, George Washington. You know, in, uh, in France, you know, they have Joan of Arc or Charles de Gaulle, uh, you know, or even, you know, in, in, in World War II, we have Roosevelt, the, uh, the, the British have Churchill. Uh, we, we look to these singular persons to kind of define that narrative, you know, to, to sum up this glory. Sure. Uh, and even in ancient Greece, you know, we have this, this idea, you know, like Achilles or Hercules, uh, where we have these singularities. That we look to, you know, these people who who led by force of charisma or led by genius or, or just sheer force of will or great warriors that could uh, subdue entire armies by themselves. Uh, we look to these people at these moments and, you know, there, there's not a single person here who didn't recognize all those names that I just said. Uh, and, you know, we're still fascinated even today with the idea of the hero. Uh, you know, and even in politics, you know, we, we look for this singularity. We look for this savior. Uh, you know, we especially in presidential elections, uh, the two candidates are like venerated on I- on either side as like the savior of the nation. You know, and every election is kind of pitted as like the, the, the good versus evil campaign, the last chance to save America campaign and looking for this one person to save America. You know, we still do that today. But, you know, even in antiquity, uh, you know, even before the time of the Bible, uh, you know, this idea pervades uh, humanity. You know, same today as it has always been. Uh, and you know, one of the great civilizations upon, basically which all other Western civilizations are uh, founded upon, is ancient Greece. Uh, and when we look back at the Bible, there, it's a very Hellenistic, Roman Hellenistic area, but the Romans built on what the Greeks had already done beforehand, in terms of unifying culture and everything like that. But in Greek mythology, which was actually borrowed by the Romans, which was in full swing during the time of the Bible, uh, this idea of the hero pervades all of the mythology. You know, we have Achilles, we have Hercules, Hector, Odysseus, Perseus, all these, all these great men who define these singular moments within the Greek uh, mythos and mythology. You know, in ancient Greece, uh, you know, every, every civilization in the West uh, from, from Greece onwards has, been, has looked backwards to ancient Greece. And even today, if you go, just go down the road to UVA, all the architecture is neoclassical. And classical just means looking back to ancient Greece. All the columns and all the, uh, all the, all the, all, all the domes and things like that look back to Rome and Greece. Uh, our civilization today is still built on this idea. And you know, the reason for that is because Greece you know, conquered the known world and also pervaded their culture throughout. Uh, all, all their conquered lands. And we have this Hellenistic era or this, this era of unifying culture. Uh, but it's funny because, you know, even, even the Greeks with their, uh, their fascination with the hero, their fascination with the singular person, you know, being lifted up into glory, they did not conquer just on the strength of one man alone. Right. No, they, th- these singular heroes did not make Greece this all-unifying idea that it is today. Yeah. Right. You know, and, and Greece, like most empires, was expanded at the point of a sword, or the point of a spear. But it wasn't just the spear or the sword of one man. And actually, historians attribute the, the military success of, of the Greeks to a military formation called the phalanx, which translates to finger, because of how unified it was, how, how well these phalanxes worked together. Uh, and the Greeks, they had this, uh, this idea of, uh, they did not have professional soldiers. Uh, all, all the people who fought in the army were citizens by most for most of their lives and then he did the battle call came to battle uh, ready to go with their their own armor but these regular th- these regular citizens became the most feared warriors in all the world and you know we, we looked at places like Sparta and Sparta for sure had like you know myth, like le- legendary warriors but most of Greece uh, their warriors weren't Spartans You know, they conquered, most of the people who went around conquering, weren't Spartans. They were just ordinary men. But the reason that they were the most feared warriors in the world was because of how they worked together. And the whole idea of of this phalanx formation was that these men would band together and hold out their, uh, their shields in front of each other into this wall. This impenetrable wall of shield and just march forward in that fashion. Uh, and they would meet the enemy slow but steady, just with this wall of shields, with their spears pointing out, and close ranks and just push back the uh, the enemy forces. And in, in a, uh, we're, we're all familiar with the with the idea of uh, or with the, the term marathon, but the that word comes from a battle that was fought at Marathon, where the Greeks actually destroyed a uh, a, a Persian army that was much larger than themselves. And the reason they were able to do that was because by utilizing these phalanxes in in complete unity, the Persians weren't able to uh, penetrate their shield wall. Weren't able to fire their arrows into the ranks of the Greeks. Weren't able to get their javelins in there. And these ordinary and and in most cases unschooled men were able to defeat a, a force much larger than themselves. Not because they were better warriors necessarily, but because they were more unified but because they worked together as a single unit of the body, this finger, this phalanx. That's how they conquered the known world. And 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 these men who who were just farmers, who were just tradesmen, who were just craftsmen, conquered the entire known world because of how they worked together, not because of a single hero. And each man sacrificed his individuality, sacrificed his uh, freedom and his own desires to put the unit above himself to put the men around him above himself, to just become a shield in a wall rather than an individual. Wow. And by that way, they conquered the entire known world. The question is, how does it have to do with Jesus? Go ahead and turn over Ephesians 4. It's like, that's a nice history lesson, Stephen, but where in the world is the Bible coming to this? <laughs> I could talk for 30 minutes about ancient Greece, so I've got to put in the, the Bible somewhere. Uh, I studied history at UVA, for those who don't know. But on Ephesians 4, uh, you know, we, we've been talking about Ephesians for the, the past few weeks. Uh, and Paul here uh, is coming to a pivot point. He's coming to a point uh, where the whole book shifts. He's built this idea of, of grace. He's been trying to, trying to get the Ephesians to understand this idea of love. Uh, you know, remind, he's reminded them of the depths to which they had sunk in their godlessness uh, in the fact that they were Gentiles, excluded from the kingdom of God. And then he's inspired them with, with, with recalling the heights to which they've been raised, saying, you've been given every spiritual blessing under Christ. You've been, uh, you've been made fellow citizens along with the Jews. You know, you've been, uh, you're being built into a holy temple, and the people who were once excluded from this uh, citizenship in uh, God's nation now have the spirit dwelling within them, now have the spirit dwelling within the church that they're a part of. And this is this is this amazing idea of glory of just being lifted from these depths to these amazing heights, seated with Christ. And this is like amazing. I think the temptation is to think like, man, like we have we have this mental image of glory that has to do with the hero, that has to do with the singularity, and we think like, man, I'm about to go out and kill it, like I'm about to go out and evangelize the world, like I'm going to baptize everybody, you know, I'm going to repent of all the sins, you know, and just do it all by myself and just run ahead and conquer, uh. And, you know, that's, that's all amazing. But let's see what Paul has to say at this pivot point where, uh, in verse 1. You know, Paul says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Amen. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. We'll stop there for now. And this is the pivot point in verse one where, where Christ or where Paul t- says, live a life worthy of the calling you have received, and it's built up the worth of that calling. But the picture he paints isn't this one of singular glory, isn't running ahead and conquering everything by ourselves. The first thing he says is, Be completely humble. Wow. You know, even before then, he just highlights the fact that he's a prisoner. You know, Paul's like their example besides like he's he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And Paul's example is like as a prisoner, as someone who's bound, who's in chain, who doesn't have freedom. Live this life worthy of the calling. You know, he says, be completely humble, be patient, bearing with one another, another in love. And, you know, Paul's saying this life worthy of the calling isn't founded in personal glory it's founded on humility, and it's founded on unity. You know, I think from a worldly perspective, that, that can be kind of, kind of confusing. You know, just given everything that we've kind of said, and, you know, the shared wisdom we have of, like, heroes always get remembered. You know, but even he talks about the example of Christ in all this. You know, he said, guess what? Christ descended to the lower earthly regions. And mm. you know, it's like he, just, he who, who, you know, has been raised up, uh, who's exalted above, you know, everything in the universe, he descended first. Wow. You know, yeah. he lowered himself there it is. first. And only then he ascended higher than all the heavens. You know, this life worthy of the calling is rooted and based in humility. And it's rooted in lowering ourselves just as Christ did. And this, this is like a radical idea. You know, it goes against all we would kind of naturally think mm-hmm. about glory, about ascendancy, about, you know, being lifted up into the people of God. Yep. No, the question is, you know, why is that? Why this call to humility? Mm -hmm. You know, I think because Paul knows that singularly, you know, by ourselves, none of us are strong enough to do this on our own. None of us are really, really good enough to live this life worthy of the calling by ourselves. Because what's the goal here? What is Paul trying to get the Ephesians to achieve through all this? In verse 13, he says, Until we reach unity in the faith, And the knowledge of the Son of God God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, by the cunning and craftiness of men, their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And this is actually something we've been talking a lot about in campus. You know, th- th- this is our theme, actually, is attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And that's the goal right there. The goal is Christ. To attain that full measure of Christ in our own lives. You know, to grow up in every way into Christ. And, and there's no higher calling than that. Like, in the entire world, there's nothing, there's nothing loftier of an ambition right. than to get to Christ. And I think we all instinctively know how crazy that is, you know, and we, we see this like this gaping chasm between us and the righteousness of Christ. Yeah. And, I, and I think because of that, we instinctively and quite naturally just lower our sights from Christ. Mm, sure. you know, instead of the goal being Christ, we say, no, I can't do that. And so we're like, we, you know, it's up here and then we say, but I can do this mm-hmm. and I'll just kind of settle here. You know, this'll be my goal. And we we don't even really think about it. But that's kind of we we just get in this comfortable level of righteousness. Where it's no longer the goal is no longer the righteousness of Christ. The goal is just an acceptable level of Christ likeness. You know, we settle for good enough, we settle for Christ like enough and we think like, Oh, I'll camp out here. You know, this is fine, like as long as I don't really slide further back into sin, I'll be fine. But that's not the life we've been called to. You know, that's, that's not the worth of the grace that we've been given. Uh, you know, Christ didn't die so that we could ha- be halfway righteous and just kind of settle. You know, we haven't been given every spiritual blessing in heaven. So we could kind of get kind of the way there and then just kind of stop. You know, uh, and, you know or we get to be righteous in the eyes of the world. Uh, and we look more righteous than the people around us. And then we're like, that's good enough. You know, or just when we're righteous compared to how we used to be, you know, before we were a disciple or even last year, or even last week. And we're like, no, this is a good place. You know, this is an acceptable level of transformation. This is an acceptable level of change. That's not why Christ died. Right. That's that's not the worth of the, the, the calling we've received. You know, and Paul just just painted this, this whole grand picture and go back and read the rest of Ephesians or go back and listen to the sermons. The, the calling is so much grander than that. It's so much grander than just settling for this. Christ died so we could be saved and sanctified, and you know, and always continue to grow up in Him. You know, breach those upper limits. You know, conquer conquer the unknown, the unknown places of our unrighteousness. Do things we've never thought we could. Go places we never thought we would. Uh, you know, Christ died so we could live the life we were always meant to live. You know, and we were created to live. Uh, The life that God knows is going to give us the greatest amount of peace, the greatest amount of fulfillment, the greatest amount of satisfaction and purpose and meaning in our lives. And he's given us like all we need to to get there increasing and more and more and more in the Holy Spirit, but also in the church. And what Paul is getting at here is that, you know, to live this life worthy of this calling, we're going to need each other and we're going to need to work together because by ourselves, it's impossible. You know, and we need to use every advantage we have to mold ourselves into the body of Christ as it's meant to be, you know, because the power of God exists in the church, you know, as the body of Christ. Being connected to the head means being connected to the body. You know, and we're not going to be able to grow in love without each other. We're not going to be able to seek and save the lost without each other and, and you know, or, or repent of our sins without each other. Uh, it, it might, you know, we might get to a certain level by ourselves. But not nearly to the full measure of Christ without his body, without that unity. Yeah. You know, it's not going to be nearly as effective. But what gets in the way of that is pride. Why does Paul start out here by saying be completely humble? Because nothing gets in the way of unity than a focus on the self. You know, pride is just, just focusing on the individual, just focusing on ourselves as heroes, you know, as singularities. Uh, as these singular persons who can just do things by ourselves, you know? when, we're, when we put ourselves above the group, unity isn't achieved. You know? when, when we're more concerned with our individuality, with our own time, with our own energy, with our own schedules, uh, the unity is destroyed. And just kind of briefly going back to, to this idea of the phalanx, this idea of, of the, uh, the ancient Greek soldier. A battle was won and lost based on whether or not the phalanx held. As soon as the formation broke, the battle was basically lost. That was the goal. In the infighting within the Greek states themselves, the goal was to break the other side's phalanx and cause them to turn around, drop their shields, and run. Because then you could shoot them. Then you could get them in the back. Then you could take them on one by one and cut them down piecemeal. That was the goal of the other army, was to break that unity. And battles were won and lost based on on whether or not that happened. A singular Greek soldier was was nothing by himself was just an ordinary an ordinary guy with a spear and by himself was easily cut down by another guy with another spear pride is totally antithetical totally opposite to this you know but I, I just think for myself you know the the times where I'm not dedicated to the body and it's, it's still tempting to I still struggle with unity I still struggle with with giving myself fully to the, to the body of Christ you know, the times when I'm not sacrificing for unity or not sacrificing to love the disciples, you know, are just the times I'm being protective of myself, you know, wanting to run out by myself, uh, be that singular warrior who's easily cut down. You know, I'm being protective of my time, my independence, protective of my energy. And I can struggle a ton with like giving myself to people, uh, you know, going out of my way to encourage them, you know, using my time and my energy to do that or bending my schedule to fit, fit other people's needs. I'm like very protective of like my sleep, you know, or uh, the the time I have to myself, Uh, you know, the time I have to like do work or even just do lesson prep or things like that. Very protective of that. Uh, You know, and don't want to give that up to help or encourage the disciples, you know. I don't want to necessarily call people to just encourage them, you know, to pray with them. I struggle to to meet with people at like weird hours or use my time, even at events, to just connect with people deeply, you know. Even just using the time I have with the body in a way that's actually unifying, you know, or or use that time to, to confess to people, to ask advice, to, to solicit help, you know, to let people rely on me, but also rely on others, you know, to be a part of that shield wall. My pride gets in the way. It, it's it's much more my desire to be that that hero, to be that warrior uh, who's who's just out just doing it by by himself, you know, or to try to be that. Uh, I just crave independence. I just crave self sufficiency to just do it by myself. But that's not God's plan. That's not even how like Jesus did it. Like Jesus went around like constantly taking others with him, constantly building other people up. Everything he did, and, you know he would he would retreat and recharge every once in a while. But he would even let people encroach on those times. You know, to uh, to he would get up early uh, to pray, and then people would find him, and then he'd heal them. You know, and he would, you know, the disciples weren't the most reliable people at the time, but he tried to rely on them. You know, in the garden, he asked them to stay up and pray with him Wow! because he knew that he was better with them than without. Even Christ got this. You know, this is Christ's example. Christ, the one man who could have been that hero, who could have been that singularity, brought people along with him and relied upon others, or at least tried to, even when they were unreliable. Um, and I I look at the times in my life when I've convinced myself that, that I can do it by myself. Uh, and it's just like dumb. Like I I remember times in my life just being like, I have the Bible. Like I can convict myself. Like I can, I can call myself higher. You know, I know what the calling is. I don't need other people to tell me. I know where I'm failing and I can just kind of inspire myself to do it. Fails every time. I'm like, I I fall into so much self-deception and so much like just addiction to comfort and all that. Wow. Uh, and, every, you know, I, I remember the times where, where that's been most manifest in my life have been the times I've struggled the most yeah. spiritually, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and just slid back in my discipleship and like slid back on my convictions and like didn't even know it and didn't even see it. And like yeah. at a certain point almost fell away just because I was like convinced I could do it by myself. And I was just that singular soldier outside of the line, taking the arrows without anybody to help him. Yeah. Uh, and the question is, church: Are we pursuing humility and unity? And I think think for yourself here. You know how often do you get with other disciples outside of church? You know how often do you really confess it to other people? Uh, how often do you go out of your way to encourage and serve others? When's the last time you made made someone a meal? Had other disciples over uh, just to encourage them to do something for? Them? Made someone a card you knew was struggling. Uh, you know how many, how many deep conversations do you have at church in this prime opportunity that we have? And I think, you know, just about church, I think it's easy to come to church and just kind of hope that the singing and the lessons and the communion just are going to fix us, just kind of by themselves. You know, and let me be humble for a second, or try to be humble for a second. I, I spend a lot of time not preaching. Uh, you know, and I don't actually usually preach. I, I spend a lot of time just sitting out there, and I know that, lessons by themselves don't always change people for life like that's just a fact all right Uh, (laughs) as much as as much as i would like that to be the case i know that like most of my lessons are not going to be remembered despite the amount of like time that i put in on them i'm really encouraged like when people like remember things from my lessons and like tell me tell me things uh but i know that for most people like they're not going to remember the majority of my lessons. Uh, and something Drew, Drew likes to say a lot is that, you know, lessons don't change people. Heart to heart connections change people, Come on. you know, and I think uh, it, <laughs> the most powerful part of church is not supposed to be this 30 minute sermon. You know, that's not even biblical. Like no one, no one, no one in the Bible ever said, like, get up, preach for 30 minutes uh, and that'll, that'll fix you. Just kind of <laughs> just kind of sit there and listen to it and you'll be you'll be good. Uh, the most, but what is biblical is the fellowship of believers. Yeah. What's biblical is meeting together, uh, and you know that's the most powerful part of this gathering. Uh, most lessons start and end in this thirty-minute period and don't have much impact beyond that. You know, Amen. I wish that wasn't the case, and hopefully, it's not. Hopefully, you know, you can actually take this to heart. That's that's the desire, but you know, we, we're not. If we're not here for the fellowship. And we're just hoping that these lessons, lessons fix us without talking to somebody about what you're going to apply. Yeah. Talking to somebody about how you can actually apply the word, what convicted you, uh, things, things along those lines. The lesson is just going to end here. Yeah. The real convicting part is the fellowship before and after yeah. the lesson. Mm-hmm. No, but I, you know, the, the real convicting part is when we get deep with each other in fellowship. Yeah. No, are we utilizing this opportunity to really build that unity. When everybody is here, you know, getting deep with one another, confessing to one another in church, discipling one another in church while everybody is here, encouraging one another, loving one another. Mm. Or do we show up to church, you know, for the singing and the lessons or do we show up, do we show up to build one another up? Come on. You know, because all this, you know, the program is great. The, the things in church, you know, that we do are great, but only if they're done together. Right. Only if we're s- singing is great, but only if we're singing together. You know, the lesson's great, but only if we're listening together, trying to apply the word together and to build one another up. And I, I think I, I struggle with this, especially like when I'm, quote, involved in service. It can just become about the program. It can just become about, like, oh, I need a song lead, like, I need to sing, uh, I need to take care of rides. It just becomes about the nuts and bolts of service. But are we here to be unified and grow up into Christ? Because if we're not, we're honestly missing the point of why we're here at all. This lesson is worthless without the fellowship of believers, Come on. without actually putting it into practice afterwards. Uh, you know, if we show up at, t- at 1030 and leave at 12, we're missing an opportunity to live out God's vision yeah. for our lives. You know, and, and the, then the question is, you know, do we look around and is this a family? Do you look around and do you know the people here? Do you know what they're struggling with? Do you know how to help them? Do they know you? Question. Uh, and I, you know, are we consistently involved with each other's lives? And does that end at 12? You know, beyond these walls, is this still a family? Are we still unified? Uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, phalanx warfare was eventually discontinued because the Roman Romans, uh, legions came into uh, to Greece and the Roman uh, uh, formation of choice was the legion. And they began to defeat the Greek phalanxes. And so everyone thought that phalanx warfare was done, was donezo. It was gone for, it's obsolete. Uh, but actually what his, historians uh, think now is that phalanx warfare never, never really was obsolete. But what they were doing was they were using it wrong during those campaigns. And the campaigns where the Romans defeated the Greeks, what was lacking was unity. What was lacking was discipline. What was lacking was how they utilized those formations. And it, it wasn't an issue with the idea. It's just that they had put their, their, their faith in just this idea, this word phalanx. They were like, if we just do this thing, then we'll win the battle. Instead of utilizing it properly, instead of actually like, training these guys to be unified, to put themselves above the group because the, the lines would just get broken. And they would turn tail and everyone would get cut down. And they thought, man, like this doesn't work. And they put their faith in phalanxes instead of putting their faith in unity. And I think it's it's easy uh, to lose faith in gatherings like this, to lose faith in unity when we think it doesn't work. But I think it's not that when we think like, oh, I come to these things and I don't really get anything out of it. You know, I'm not really built up. Uh, and so we kind of lose faith in it. And, you know, some, some people, they stop coming. Uh, you know, they, they're not really eager. They don't really give. But I don't think the issue is so much, uh, you know, that, Meeting with believers doesn't work. I think sometimes we just do it wrong You know, we put our faith in church and we don't put our faith in unity yeah, come on. We put our faith in meeting with disciples, but we don't put our faith in being unified You know, we just kind of show up in the in, information and just expect that to magically work right. Instead of working to actually be unified working to get deep in each other's lives Time. You know and you know, let's not give up on, <laughs> meaning, you know, Hebrews uh, says, don't, do not give up meeting together. Some are in the habit of doing, uh, but, you know, spur each other on uh, towards good deeds, be unified, all that great stuff. You know, let's do this. Let's, you know, have church, but let's do it right. You know, let's have the formation, have all the nuts and bolts and things like that, but actually have the unified heart behind it. Because that's what's going to win the day. Let's not put our faith in church. Let's put our faith in unity and helping each other live these lives worthy of the calling that we receive by being completely humble, by making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Because everything that Paul writes after this is founded upon this one notion, is founded upon unity. Everything else that he's going to say from this point on in Ephesians is with the idea of doing it together, is with the idea of doing it unified. And how amazing would church be if we came in every week and everyone was giving to each other. Everyone was getting deep with each other. You knew everybody here. You knew their struggles. You knew what to pray for them. You were praying for them. You were calling them. You were encouraging them. And not waiting around for people to do that to you, but doing it for others. You know, emptying ourselves out for each other and in turn just being filled up without even having to ask for it. How amazing would this gathering be? No longer would people say like, you know, church doesn't help me or church whatever. Like, you're like, no, like the fellowship of believers is amazing, you know? let's do this to do it right. You know, let's do this, but do it unified. Let's not put our faith in church. Let's put our faith in unity and be completely humble and build each other up towards righteousness. So thanks guys so much. All right, we can all stand. We'll sing together. and in awe.